know the uh, time of counting the Omer, the weeks, the weeks that we're going through now, which is the time of um, the time of the seven weeks that take us from uh, the seven weeks that take us from Pesach to Shavuos, or the time of counting. We the mitzvah is to count, as I'm sure you're aware count of the days and count of the weeks and there are, 49, there are 49 days in this process which takes us from from an undeveloped or non-human or not fully human situation to the spiritually developed or fulfilled level of or transcendent level even beyond the human level which is what Torah is on the 50th day and there's uh, much of course to say about this about this process, but one of the ideas here is that in these seven weeks we go through the seven, if you like, mystical or spiritual um, forces or emanations or midas, whatever you, whatever you want to call them. And of course, the idea of 49 is that in each of the seven, the seven are contained, right? Which should be really should be obvious because if everything in the world is if everything in the world is um, if everything in the world is made of seven then obviously each of the seven must be made of the same seven makes sense right and so there are 49 levels now before rather than going to the before one can go into the breakdown one obviously needs to look at the primary seven and each of them obviously needs full explanation and discussion but let's begin with where we are now this is the completion of the second week of the honor tonight in fact just before we enter the month of ER tonight and tomorrow represents the the fullness, what's, uh, all, these, uh, all these points and energies that have specific terminology that the deeper literature gives them. But the point is that tomorrow is the day, the 14th day, tonight and tomorrow is the 14th day of the Omer, which is really the, the completion of the second week. You know that the, the seventh point of, seven, of a seven-part structure is always the completion or the uh, totality of that thing. And therefore tonight we are, we are looking at the completion and obviously inherent in that completion is the beginning of the next cycle, but at a primary level we're looking at the completion of, we're experiencing now, the completion of the second of these seven, these seven energies. And the, the name, the name, the concept is the concept of Din. Din means, Din means, very hard to translate accurately, but Din is the quality of precise and specific limitation. I mean, the, 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 the loose translation of din is justice or judgment, that which is judgmental or that which is um, connected to the judicial or the... That, that, that would be its perhaps the most common application. But din really means, the root of the concept means giving a specific limitation. Now, midas din means when something is... Shuras din means the line of... That which is just. You know, the English word just even means specific and precise. Just means only. Right? That's a, there's, an, there's an echo of this. Because the concept of justice means where there's a full limitation. Obviously, justice. What justice means as opposed to mercy or kindness. 
which means an extension or going beyond the letter. In English you call it the letter of the law. In Torah sources it's called the line of the law. Shura Sadin means the line. A line is a, is, a, is, a, is a, strictly speaking, a line is a, is a, a line of infinitesimally thin proportions, right? That means it's as specific as it, as it, could, as it could be. One millimeter before, one millimeter later is not, is not the line. Not. Din means that which is exact. But not only exact. As soon as you have a concept of exactness, you have a concept of limitation. Not. Let's try, to, let's try to fill it out and understand it more. The, the first of the, perhaps the way to do it is like this. The first, let, let me share with you the, let me share with you first of all the Gemara that I was hoping to be able to explain to some extent, which I hope will, hope will at least uh, pique your interest. And then we can try to discuss this quality of Din. The Gemara is in Chagiga and it says as follows. You can look it up yourself. It's like you Gimel on the base. The Gemara says like this. It's a very, very complicated Peace with many, many dimensions, but talking here about angels, different types of angels, how they formed, what happens to speech. What forms an angel, what creates him, what happens to him at the end of the day, what happens to him the next day. But all in terms of this quality of din. And the Gemara says like this um, 1,000 uh, or a million. Of these particular creatures are servants of mine, says Hashem Lenar Dinur, which means for the river of well, the Nahar Dinur means the river of Nur. Now Dinur is the Aramaic, if you translate it literally, it means the river of fire. If you translate that word, instead of taking it as a name, you translate it as a concept, it translates as Nahar Dinur is the river of fire, meaning that these these Malacha, these angels, are immersed in the river of fire. Actually, the sources that explain it more fully say that it means at the end of the day, they become immersed in this fire and consumed, and then they they reproduce the next day, or at least part of them. And uh, that's what's Shenem, because it says, because the verse says, the verse in Daniel talks about, Daniel, of course, the name Daniel means judgment, talks about this river, which goes out before Hashem, talks about the million creatures in this, that, that go through this process and how many there are and so forth. Where do they come from? Where, do these, where does it come from? Mizeasan shel chayos. Where does this river flow from? The sweat of the chayos, which means chayos are the angels, particular level of angelic beings. Apparently they sweat and their sweat forms this river. And where does it pour? In other words, where does it discharge this, this river? Where does it end? It pours onto the heads of the wicked in, in Gehenna, in the dimension of suffering or pain or retribution in the world after this. That's where the river ends, pours on their head. Because it says, It will affect itself on the heads of the, of the wicked. Those who, on those who were, it's a hard word to translate, it means who were as it were, those beings who, as it were, were ordained, in the sense of ordained to be created, and were, were never created. That means they were destined to be created, but without a time. The commentary is explained, it means these were creatures, souls. For want of a better description, human souls. Who were destined to be created and never were. Now, this river pours on their heads, and they suffer this enormous enormous pain. Right? You know, obviously, the questions, at least some of them, should be apparent here. What, what are they suffering for? They never were created in the first place. Now, what are we talking about? Tanya, Amarim Shimon, 
Hachasid. Elu Tesha Meris Veshivim Ba'aba Doiris Shekumtu Libaris. The reference here is to the 974 generations who are destined to be created. Kedem Shenivra before the world was created. Velonia, they were not created. Hashem, God Himself, stood up, and He planted them in all the subsequent generations. These are the brazen-faced individuals, that means the chutzpah-filled individuals that you find in every generation. And then the Gemara goes into other interpretations and other facets of this, of this particular discussion. Now, I'm sure we're all a lot wiser in terms of understanding the world in its... Uh, correctly, but let's let's try and put our heads into what he's going. Obviously, this is an endless subject. You can feel already that I'm sure the the depth and the the difficulty of this area. What are these 974 generations of souls that were created before the world and they were destroyed? The facts are. Before we get to the what the what these words are indicating to us, that there were 974 generations of souls who were created before the world as we know it. And as they were brought into existence, they all sinned terribly. As they were created, not, not, no time was required, as they were brought into existence, they, they behaved in the worst possible way. Probably what they actually did was they simply thought in the worst possible way, but that was bad enough. And for having transgressed in the way that they did, they were immediately destroyed. That means as they were created, they were destroyed. And in order not to bring the world to ruin, they were never brought back again in one generation, but they were planted throughout the generations in small numbers. Actually, the Gemara says, well, some commentaries explain, the Gemara says, that n- never more than ten, never ten or more in a generation. Although one would be hard put to imagine, not to notice that our generation certainly seemed to get a, a heavy-handed dose, shall we say of the chutzpah-filled, uh, self-overconfident and uh, individuals. But be that as it may. They were spread throughout the generations to be those individuals in each generation who would be the ones full of chutzpah. Which means, of course, chutzpah means... Chutzpah is not just a... Chutzpah means... There's a, there's a meaning to it. Chutzpah means to arrogate to oneself complete self-importance while yet lacking any genuine content. The way the Gemara puts it is that chutzpah is malchusa beloy taga. It means rule. It means rule without a crown. Which means, of course, being like a king, but without the genuine symbol of kingship. Right? If you want a crude picture of it, it would be somebody who, somebody who rules and um, evinces, manifests power, right? And yet has no qualification to be a ruler. No, nothing other, nothing other than the claim itself. I mean, the, the Gemara says that in the pre-Messianic age, chutzpah yazge, that uh, chutzpah will be hard to translate. Yazge literally, the, the loose translation is there will be a lot of chutzpah. There will be a lot of chutzpah. Thanks. But if you translate it literally, it means, that means there will be tremendous uh, in, let's say, amplification or tremendous swelling or uh, expression of chutzpah in the pre-Messianic generation. But if you translate it, if you translate it literally, chutzpah yazge means there will be enough chutzpah. Sagi means enough. And the Briskorov used to say what it really means is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a wry you know, sort of humor in it, but he used to say that chutzpah will be enough means that all you'll need in that generation will be chutzpah. That's all. It will be enough. That's all you'll need. All you need is bluster and self-confident sort of self-assertion and that's all you'll need. Such will be the leaders of the generation, will be the people who claim 
to be able to be leaders even though they have no, <coughs> no qualification other than the desire to have the power which is the silliest rule the silliest reason imaginable to give anybody power is the fact that he wants power over you I mean who could be less responsible than somebody who all he wanted was to have the power over you that you've given him is ridiculous but be that as it may that's what will happen so these were the individuals who were created as souls before the world was created there's a lot that's written about it in many sources that we have the deeper sources this is one one of the references here is to worlds that were created and destroyed before this you know the Medrash says that before this world was created worlds were created and destroyed and there are many interpretations of that <laughs> statement but the one that's relevant to us this evening is these worlds of souls that were created and destroyed before the world obviously the question is why did God why did Hashem create worlds and destroy them the, 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 the same source says that means the, th- this doesn't help me this is not what I want this is not what I want this is the one that I want those worlds were created it says like sparks that fly from the anvil when a smith is working the sparks of, they fly and then they extinguish and they were, not, they were not brought into existence until this world was created obviously this raises many questions what does it mean worlds created that were not right I mean he doesn't make mistakes what, what, what's going on here what is going on here why, incidentally, 974? I mean, that's, uh, that, I presume, is obvious. No? Not obvious? It should be obvious. It says, that the Torah, his word was commanded to a thousand generations. And it says in Tehillim. That means that the Torah was given, was to be given, and was given to the thousandth generation. That means after a thousand generations had lived, the thousandth generation would be given the Torah. A little simple history and arithmetic will show you that there have been nowhere near a thousand generations in the history of the world. Right? We claim, we, we understand that the world is only 6,000, less than 6,000 years, years old. And from Sinai till now, for example, from Sinai until now, there have only been some 80-odd generations. If you count a generation, it's 40 years. And Sinai was 3,300 years ago. That's only just in excess of 80 generations. So where in the history of 5,000-odd years, not, or certainly in the years until the Torah was given, 3,300 years ago, where was the time for a thousand generations? Right on the contrary. The only number of generations, and we have them all documented accurately in the Torah itself, from the creation from Adam to Moses to Moshe who received the Torah, there were exactly 26. Right? Ten from Adam to Noah, ten from Noah to Avram, and six from Avram to Moshe, 26 generations. So where were the thousand generations that the Torah was given to? And the answer is there were 974 generations of souls before the world as we know it. And then the world began as we know it, and there are 26 generations as we, yeah, that we have documented in the Torah by name, until the 26th of those was given the Torah, namely the thousandth generation from the beginning of the formation of, of souls in general. That's why, and that's how we know, one of the sources that, that we use to know that this reference about these particular souls is a reference to the 974 generations of souls that were... Now, what exactly, what exactly is going on? So, let's try and discuss this evening a little bit on this final night of the week of, of this quality. Because every week, obviously, one tries to incorporate the correct version of that particular mid or quality in the character. In fact, some people take it more seriously than that. They break it down to 49 particular details. And each day of the 49, they work on that particular refinement of character that that day suggests. If you do it that way, then tonight would be the fulfillment and the fruition and the completion of this quality of of ultimate discipline or ultimate limitation or ultimate justice if you like let's try and study it and see if we can get a bit of a better understanding of what's going on here and of course ultimately what we want to do is I mean apply it right we want to not only we want to not only understand a Torah subject in depth here but even if we don't have time to go into it fully obviously what we're intending here is to internalize the quality so that we can walk out of here one step more advanced on that journey that takes us from Pesach Shuras, obviously 
The quality of din means, perhaps the best way to illustrate it is that the first week, the first week where the spirit begins during Pesach is the week of Chesed. The middle of Chesed is the middle of complete unlimited outpouring. Right? What you, would, you might call perhaps the best application you might be able to express would be unlimited love. Which means really <coughs> an unconditional unlimited giving. The first quality called Chesed means a giving. Giving means giving of, of, of all that there is to give, including obviously the self, without any limitation. We have, for example, the statement, Olam Chesed Yiboni, the world is built on Chesed. When Hashem created the world, it was an act of Chesed, that means a pure giving. Since obviously He cannot take, since He is complete and within Himself, the purpose of creation of the world was to be a manifestation of His giving. A lot of detail obviously to be discussed here. We look it up in the beginning of Derech Hashem in the Ramchal, who speaks it out clearly. The first quality is the quality of Chesed. In any relationship, surely the underlying motivation, and surely that on which I predicate the whole relationship, is my love for you. Uh, in a marital relationship, for example, in a parent-child relationship, the motivation and the name, the quality, the, the, the concept, the, 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 the deepest quality of the relationship surely is the love. That's, why the, that's what the relationship means. And therefore, chesed means a completely unconditional, unlimited love. That's what chesed is. What is Kabbalistically referred to as the right hand. The second is referred to as the left hand. But you see readily that giving without any limitation is not necessarily good. Giving without limitation, right? The, perhaps the sharpest way to see it is that the Torah uses the word chesed to describe both unlimited love and giving and also sexual immorality. The Torah calls chesed. What on earth does that have to do? Well, the concept is unlimited giving. That means not being able to say no. It's yes in any place. It's not yes appropriately, which means a sense of limitation. It's yes with an unlimited sense. And therefore, it's not good. It's simply unlimited giving. On the contrary, and here comes the point that we need to understand this evening, what makes the giving good is its very limitation. It's when you know when to say no, that the saying yes is meaningful. Let, let's try to illustrate that. And of course, this week is the quality of saying no. And it's the quality of discipline, or not being able to limit. But the first thing to grasp about this quality is that it's a manifestation or regular of the love and the kindness. The saying no is not there because you want to say no. The saying no and the discipline and the limitation and the withholding is so that the giving can be a genuine giving. It's for this reason that it's the second and not the first. You know, the mystical idea is that all of these seven unfold from each other. The first contains all of them. Right? And what comes out first manifest from that is the second. The second contains all the subsequent. There's an unfolding here. Right? Just like conception contains the future of the child. The pregnancy is only an expression of what was laid down in the conception. But the pregnancy itself has all of the future of the child. It's a development that will later be, that will later be revealed right, in the next stage. This is not a chain with one thing attached to the next. This is a birth process in which the first contains all, and it gives birth to the second and all subsequent ones. The second becomes the first with respect to what comes later, and it gives birth to the subsequent. And therefore, if the world is built with kindliness, it means that kindness, or chesed, gives birth and necessitates and must have the next quality, which is the quality of limitation. First of all, before getting into the theoretical and philosophical aspect, let's just try to make it practical. If you say yes, if you give without saying no, then you can destroy just as surely as not giving at all. Right? If you, de- you develop a child, for example, right? you're responsible for a child as a parent, let's say, and you say yes to the child with no limitation, saying yes and giving with no limitation is just as sure a method of destroying a child as not giving at all. The real, is this, is this clear? The real, it's, it's saying no at the right moment which makes the giving a correct giving. Right? Saying no too soon is limited to giving, but saying no too late has overdone the giving to a point where it begins to spoil and harm. Of course, the timing and giving, you're getting exactly the right moment, so you haven't limited the giving. On the other hand, you haven't done too much. That quality is next week's quality. 
That's called the third, the balance in the exact harmony of knowing when to say yes and when to say no. That's a very refined and difficult idea. That's getting the right and left hands perfectly harmonized. And that has to be discussed. But maybe next week, if we have the chance to be together, and Hashem opens our eyes again, we'll try. But for this week, let's understand how the limiting is the quality of making finite and making definite, and that the reason that it's there is to make the goodness manifest. <coughs> the sources that talk about this would give the example of the rain. The rain is a pure chesed, right? It is the outpouring of that which makes everything grow. But if the rain doesn't stop, then it's a flood. So that the two qualities you need in the rain are you need the rain to fall, which is the outpouring of... But then, but then to maintain its quality of goodness, it has to stop. Is this, is this... The ultimate example, of course, is what the Medrash says, that when the world was created originally, it was created with the quality of chesed, and it began spreading at the speed of, speed of light, let's say. It? Began spreading. Until Hashem, the heavens, until God, Hashem, shouted at it, yelled at the world, it has a meaning that, and he said, stop, die. The word die means stop, and then the world froze in this particular size. So that chesed means the, the outpouring and the creation itself with, unlimit, with no limitation until the second quality was put in which said stop. Not more, not less. Then you have a world. When a woman creates a child within her body, she does it by selecting from the potential that the male gives, the millions upon billions of opportunities that the male gives, she selects just one. So that all the multiplicity of potential is sacrificed and it's limited down to what can and must be. And then you have a child. In fact, the word for female, should be obvious now, is that the first quality is male. The quality of ultimate outpouring is, at giving with no limitation, is called male. That's why the word zachar in Hebrew, which means male, adds up to the same numerical value as bracha, which means a blessing. The word for female in Hebrew is nekeva. The literal meaning of that word in Hebrew means to fix and make finite. Right? Like it says, Nakva fix your wages and I'll pay you. Give me a figure. Until you quote a figure, you can't be paid. You have the thrill of knowing that you could say more and more and more. But until you say the figure, you get nothing. The, 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 the duality here is that there's a pain in saying a limitation. On the other hand, it makes it real. And therefore, in order to have genuine goodness, you must have the quality of detaching. I'll just give one more example, which is a practical one. It's very important, of course. To understand again, it should be obvious is that genuine giving to someone is at, at the moment when you allow them to detach. When you give to someone and make them attached to you so that they need you, it's not a genuine giving. That, on the contrary, is a selfishness and a, a holding on to a sense of power. You know, a remarkable maturity in a relationship, for example, a parental relationship, is when to let go. Because, or if in a charitable relationship, for example, if I give you charity, but I, I hold you attached to me by having to come and... Yeah, because you need me all the time... There's an element in that that's not charitable at all. When I give you that which makes you independent of me, even though I no longer have the privilege and the thrill of giving you, but I make you independent of me, right, is a much deeper charity. Like they say in the, in the second world there, they say, instead of giving a man fish, teach him to fish. Right? Don't give him money, give him a fishing rod. Because then you set him up as independent. You, give a pers- you set a person up in business, you don't just give him what to eat, you, you give him the opportunity. You know, an incredible example of this. And Torah, in Torah, the language always says it all. In Hebrew, the verb we use, the verb we use, amazing thing, the verb we use for giving kindness in Hebrew is gomel. We say gomel chesed, right? Gemilus chesodim, gomel chesed. Remarkably, the word gomel in Hebrew literally means to wean. 
Weaning means when the mother stops feeding the child milk. When the mother stops feeding the child, by yigam mal, means and he was weaned. Taken off the breast, no more milk. Why on earth would you name, would you use as a verb for the giving of kindliness the moment when the giving stops? You hear the paradox? But the meaning is obvious. While the child is yet attached and dependent, there's one kind of kindness. But a far greater kindness is when the mother brings the child to the point that the child can now live without meaning. There's a, there's a deep sadness in that, but there's a tremendous mature joy in that. And therefore, in our, our grasp is that, that, that there must be the detachment inherent in the, in the attachment. Otherwise, it's not a genuine... It's not a genuine goodness. And therefore, when we say, it's a remarkable reminder. If you give someone something that maintains his attachment to you in humility and humiliation, perhaps, so that's not, that's not, that's not, that's not maybe chesed, but it's not gomel chesed. when you give the person the opportunity to detach and be independent. I hope this is, uh, is clear. So the quality we're talking about this week is the quality of din. Din means that which is now, the, the Medrash and the Gemara and the Medrash says like this. When Hashem created the world, when God created the world, after the initial outpouring of His intention to create the world, to give us the opportunity to be, He, he, he began the creation with a quality of din. It says, that means, very hard to translate, I mean to get, but it says, it came up in His mind, to create the world with din. That means Hashem wanted to create a world in which things would be exact and specific, and ultimately limited. That means, the letter of the law, as you say, would be exact. Rosh and Olim is kind. He saw that the world could not exist like that, because in a world of pure din, you couldn't put a foot wrong. As soon as you did anything out of line, you'd be stepping out of reality. <coughs> the punishment, actually, we would say spiritually, the consequence would be that you would disappear. You would, you would... The gift of life would be withdrawn immediately. He saw that the world would not survive that way. So he stood up, as it were, and he combined with the quality of din, he combined with the quality of din, of strict limitation and justice, he combined the quality of rachamim, which means, loosely translated, kindliness or mercy, let's say. Which means that if you put a foot wrong, you do something wrong, you're not held accountable to the strict and limited letter of the law. There's an extension, there's a second chance, there's an opportunity to plead, and, to, and therefore the world, the world survives. Now, this, this, this idea presents many problems. First of all, what does it mean when we say that he wanted to create the world with din and then he saw that the world wouldn't survive so he created it, he added rachamim there are a number of fundamental questions. Again, these are fundamental Jewish ideas. Okay? It's worth concentrating deeply because Torah is built. These are the underpinnings. These are the energies that underlie Torah. Okay? These are the fundamental, the seven fundamental things that build the world. They may sound abstract and it may be a little difficult at first to grasp but this is where this is on what, these are the pillars or the foundations on which everything is built. What does it mean, first of all, that he wanted to create the world with din and then saw that it wouldn't survive, so he added rachami. When he made a mistake, when we're talking about Hashem, about God, it occurred to him to build the world with din, then he saw that the world wouldn't survive, so then he added rachami. Right? I mean, what is this? You realize we're talking here about nothing other than creating souls that in fact could not survive and die. So then he created souls afterwards, namely Adam and the rest of history, that could survive on a different basis entirely. What does it mean that it, that it occurred to him, but it wasn't viable or feasible, and therefore he did? And secondly, and secondly, how can you combine mercy? How can you combine mercy with din? din that's a contradiction in terms. Din means that which is exact. You can't combine something that's not exact with something that's exact and still have that which is exact. You can't do that. 
You could say, it would have made sense to our intellect to say, he wanted to create the world with justice, with din, saw that it wasn't viable, set aside the din, and created the world with rachamim. With mercy, with extensions, with kindness, with, that you could understand. But how on earth can you possibly combine... Uh, are you with me? Din means that it's exact. How can you combine non-exactness with exactness and still have exactness? How can you do that? You can do away with that which is exact and make something else not exact. That we understand. But the word isn't. The word is shita. That means shituf means partnered. He combined a partnership of that which is exact and strict, that which isn't. Well, what does that mean? He never took away the din. The din remains. The world is based on din. But somehow there's an admixture of rachamim. What on earth is... Incidentally, the word rachamim means mixture. Do you know that? The word rachamim in Hebrew is not the same as chesed. Chesed is the pure right-hand side. Giving. Unlimited giving. Din is the pure left-hand side. Rachamim is a kindness that itself is a combination. The word rechem, which is the root of the word rachamim, means the womb, which is a central organ. Right? In fact, in the deeper sources, they talk about chesed, din, rachamim, chadar. Right, chesed, left, din, the middle, rachamim, which is a combination. Very few central organs in the body. Almost none. Almost none. Only the tongue, essentially. That the bris of the tongue and the bris miller, or the, yeah, in the female, is the rechem, the womb. That is a central structure. Very little, if anything else. That is the place of combination of opposites. Obviously, it should be painfully obvious, patently obvious, that the womb is the place of combination of the right and the left. That's where male and female energies meet. That's why the word rechem, if you rearrange the letters, it spells machar, which means tomorrow. That's the place of birth of the future. And of course, the same three letters are ramach. The same, the 248 organs of the body that are formed, in fact, over there. And other permutations as well. Chomer, which means the material of the body is formed. There are many answers, of course. All, all relevant. But, also Cherem, because that's where destruction of the previous form takes place. But, the, that's what Rachami means. It is this quality of combination. In fact, Hashem's name, the name of Hashem, Yudke Vavke, the name we never pronounce, is often expressed as the name of Rachamim. The truth is, it's not, it's above you know that all the divine names, each one brings a quality into the world. Shem Elohim, for example, is the name of justice, strict din. Name Adnus, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Adoy, that name, another quality. Shakai means Dai, who said stop to the world. Each name, the Yudke Vavke, that name that we never pronounce, is sometimes conveyed as being the name of Rachamim. In fact, it's much more than that. It's the name of all names. It's the place where all is one. But that's what's meant by Rachamim. It's where opposites meet. It's where opposite meets. It means it's the name that is, that is Rachamim, which is not a contradiction to Din. It's much, more, much deeper than simply a one particular Midah. But if there is a Midah, this is the way to express it, would be Midah Sarachim. So the questions we have is, the questions we have are, first of all, how could he create a world in which there's a combination of Din and something that's not Din? That's a contradiction in terms. And secondly, what does it mean that he wanted to create a world of justice and then... Well, the concept is something like this. Why, first of all, is a world created with din not viable? Why is such a world not able to survive? And the reason is that, in very, very basic, even perhaps childlike terms, if a world is set up where the rules are the rules, and we have to remember that the creation that Hashem makes is existence itself, and you go against the rules. So, in, in, in simple terms, we'd say you'd be punished by being killed. But in deeper terms, we'd say you would have passed out of existence. Now, imagine a world in which din is exact. Which means that there are rules, right? If you break a rule, what would be the punishment for breaking the simplest and smallest rule in the Torah? The answer would be just as serious as the most serious one. Let, let's try and understand this. 
You know that, again, it's a long discussion, but just briefly in a nutshell, let's extract what we need. You know that every mitzvah has got two components, and every avera has two components. Long discussion, but very briefly, it's like this. Every mitzvah has two, every commandment that you fulfill has two spiritual consequences. One is that it's an opportunity to obey a command. Never mind what the thing is, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're obeying what you... But there's a second component to every mitzvah, and that is you're building part of the world. The mitzvah, mitzvahs could have been what they call whimsical. That means it doesn't matter what it is, it's just an opportunity to obey. He wants you to wear this on your clothes, and he wants you to wear this and eat this kind of food and not eat that. It doesn't matter what it is. It's an opportunity for an exercise in discipline and obedience. But our concept is mitzvahs aren't like that. Mitzvahs aren't only an opportunity to obey. Each mitzvah builds a part of the world. It is, it is also an opportunity to obey and do what he wants. But it's also that he's trusted you, entrusted you with building that part of the world that corresponds to that mitzvah. The mitzvah is a building, an exercise in building the world. It therefore follows that when you, dis, when you disobey, when you break something, you're first of all disobeying an order of the king, and you're secondly harming part of the world. Now, what is the punishment for those two components? And the conclusion is remarkable. The punishment for harming part of the world is, depends what part of the world you harmed. Because the damage there is what comes back and affects you, since uh, the whole world is built on midakoneged mida. One of the most primary expressions of din in the world is that you get only what you do. Can you see how that is measure? We call it measure for measure. Right? We call it midakoneged mida. Measurement for measurement exactly. And the Gemara in our sources all say that all the other qualities may be blurred and indistinct in our phase of history. But that quality never is annulled, not for a moment, because it is din. You don't always see it, and that we'll have to discuss why. But it means that always whatever you do is exactly affecting you, exactly the way you did it, and doesn't happen to you until... That means... Yeah. So it depends what you did. That will be the degree of damage. But you didn't only do that damage, you also disobeyed. Let me put it to you in very childlike terms. Let's say you're standing in the presence of the king. And the king says, I hereby give you certain orders. One of my orders is, don't kill any of my subjects. And another of my orders is, don't spit on the floor in the palace. And as the king says that to you, go, and you spit on the floor. Do you know what they do? The fellows at the side, with the, you know, the, they walk over and they take your head off, immediately. Ah, you only spit on the floor. That's not the point. The point is that you flagrantly disobeyed an order of the king. You might have done less intrinsic damage to his kingdom by spitting on the floor than by killing one of his subjects, and no question about that. But in terms of a disobe- flagrant disobedience of an order, it doesn't make a difference what... Right, is, is the point clear? And therefore, if the world was posited on pure din, and you put a foot wrong, it doesn't matter what it was, it could be a thought out of line. You would have disobeyed, you would have you would damaged, you would have gone against, you would have controverted reality, and you would disappear instantly. So you wanted to create a world like that, saw that it couldn't survive, and mixed it with Rachel. You know what that means? He doesn't make mistakes. He did create a world like that. He did create a world of death. And he mixed with Rachamim too. Can you understand that? No. You can't understand that. And it's the same paradox that all of Judaism is built on. That Hashem is one, and yet He's the origin and being and essence of a world that is multiple. Right? And there are many examples of this paradox. Perhaps the primary one, and we certainly can't go into this evening, the primary one is no question what we call Enod Milvani, that Hashem is one. Hashem Echad is one, and there's nothing besides Him, and yet there's you and me. How can you be you and me be me, and up and down, and all the differences in the world, all the particular differentiated entities in the world be separate and different? They're all part of one Hashem, one God. We can't understand. We can say it, and we can, but we can't grasp that. That's the paradox of Yudke Vavke. That's what it means. He's the point and origin of paradox in our minds. Perhaps the most famous application is called Yadir and Bechira. The contradiction between foreknowledge and free will. 
How can you have free will if he knows beforehand what you're going to do? So what do we say? What's our Jewish approach to that? We say that he certainly knows beforehand what's going to be, obviously. And you certainly have free will, otherwise there's nothing to talk about. And those two absolutely conflict with each other, because if he knows what's going to be in advance, there never was another option. And they're both true, contradictory, you can't understand it, and that's an axiom of Jewish faith. Needs obviously a lot of discussion, philosophical issue, religious issue obviously needs discussion, but it's vested in the same point of origin. And our discussion is, the the source of it is in the same depth of paradox. The world is built with din, and yet there's rachamim, and so you get to survive, but you... I once heard a great man say that the way to grasp it is, people think that the world's like a supermarket. Do you put it in childlike terms again? People think the world's a supermarket. Supermarket means you walk around the shelves, taking things off the shelf, you don't have to pay yet. Eventually you have to check out. When you check out, then you have to settle the bill. That's a terrible mistake. The way the world is really organized is that as you take it off the shelf, you pay. You may not appreciate that till later. You may not see it. There are certain extensions that are given to your perception. But there's never, everything is balanced absolutely perfectly. Yes, there's a thing called sugar, and there's a thing called credit and extensions, and, uh, but the world is built on Midas Hadid. Let's go a little bit further. The meaning of this, that the world, he wanted to create it with this, the, be, the way we would express that is, yeah, from this evening's point of view, there were 974 generations of souls. When it says Allah B'Makshav, it came up in his mind to create a world. What does it mean coming up in his mind? When Hashem thinks something, it is real. Yeah, when he says something, it's certainly real. When he does, came up in his mind and did not create, means created these beings who are not creations like we are. Now, the big discussion in the sources, did they have bodies, didn't they have bodies? What was the nature of the vessels they inhabited? But be that as it may, they didn't inhabit bodies like ours. But nevertheless, they were, they were beings. What does it mean that they were created and destroyed immediately? They were put into a world of pure din. Later, the world was created with an admixture of rachamim, and that's why we're here. But they were created with a pure din. When you create a, human, a person, a being, a soul, with pure din, as he comes into existence, he disappears, he dies. <coughs> the, the way it's described in our sources, they had virtually no free will. They sinned with virtually no option. Why? Let's try and grasp this. I mean, again, this sounds very, very far from us, but it couldn't be closer. It could not be closer to us. Because a being was created in a world of din. How does he see himself? A world of din means things are exactly the way they have to be. Is that right? Absolute justice. Nothing is... Every grain of sand, every blade of grass, every infinitesimal dot and speck is exactly as it has to be, what it has to be and as it has to be. That's what din means. There's nothing that even could appear to be out of place. So as as soon as a being reaches consciousness in such a world, how does he grasp himself? I have to be. What's called in our philosophy, I have to be. He grasps himself as essential in his nature as God himself. But obviously, if the world is a world of din, and I'm a function of that world, and my consciousness is part of the world, and everything that is needs to be the way it is, then I have to be this way. As if to say, he couldn't get along without me. I'm essential. I'm not dependent on him for my existence. On the contrary. And as soon as a being grasps itself as detached from and complete unto itself, it disappears. Because it's placed itself beyond existence. The nature, the genuine nature of existence in the world is only Hashem's existence. That's what we mean, Einod Milvali. To the extent that you are transparent, to the extent that you are a transparent emanation of His existence, to the extent that you're nothing other 
But then a reflection of what he is, to that extent you're real. Of course, there's an immense paradox there. Because to become real, you have to give yourself up entirely. To become a genuine reflection of something genuinely real, you have to be completely transparent. And the paradox is, when you do that, you become individually and independently great. But you have to do it by giving it away. As soon as you demand existence, as soon as you say, yourself, I am something unto myself, to that extent you've detached yourself from reality, which by definition is his. This is the paradox underlying all spiritual growth. In the bluntest terms, we would say it's negation of ego. Because the, to the degree that you, to which you assert yourself, that I am something and somebody, in and of myself, to that extent you lose, you step out of reality. Of course, you don't feel that while you're in the consciousness and the, the perception and the consciousness of a human being. You feel incredible. The more you tell you, don't tell me what to do, I understand where you tell me standing here. In that moment when you do what he does not want you to do, you feel a tremendous sense of your own, of your own essence and your own being. But in fact, when clarity is revealed, you know, Svasemis says, perhaps illustrated like this, Svasemis says an amazing, he says like this, you know what it means to be created with Salam Elohim in the image of God? What does it mean to be B'Tselem Elohim? To be in the image of Hashem. So he builds it like this. He says, imagine, beyond imagination, but imagine that in Hashem's mind, as it were, in God's mind, there's a desire. The desire is that, that a certain thing should be done. So what does he do? He brings it into formulation as a commandment. Brings it down, as it were, into a commandment. And then he stops. He issues the command and he stops. He doesn't, he doesn't fulfill it. He doesn't do what he wants done. He issues the command and he wants you to do it. You then step in you take that intention and you bring that down into an expression of an action in the world and you do ultimately in the world what he wants done. Look at the picture. Look at the pattern. The very top, as it were. I mean, this is not really to be seen in graphic terms, obviously. But you can do this for the purpose of understanding. At the root is his desire, what he wants done. It comes down into the formulation of a commandment. You then step into that place. You take upon yourself that desire. You make your mind want what it is that his mind wants. And then you carry out what he wants done. And you become a microcosm of what he is. Look, look how it looks. You, what are you, you, in the mic, you in your smallness, your point of origin is your desire. And what you do is, you carry out that desire. But look at the overall thing. That is what his desire was in the first place. And it's being done. So you are the cutting edge. You are the expression. And a small reflection of what he is overall. To do that, you have to blend in and put yourself into that position where you become the part that's active in what it is that he wants. That's what we say. Say, make your desire his. Make his desire yours. In that moment that you make your desire his and you bring it perfectly into line and harmony with what he wants, you become, as it were, part of him. What's the opposite? You say, don't tell me what to do and you step aside. I'll do what I want. And you step out of the, out of the path of energy that is reality. In that moment that you step aside, you feel cosmic in your greatness. Because you are the point of origin, nothing above you. You now formulate your own original desire. There's a, there's a divine thrill in that. Because you now formulate your own independent desire. No one told me what to do. I do this because I want it. I want it simply because I want it. And you, you do it. But in that moment, you incur two sins. One is you've now done something that shouldn't have been done. And secondly, you left a piece of reality unbuilt. Because you should have been fulfilling at that moment that which was meant to happen. And you stepped out of reality that moment. So the paradox is that you feel enormous in your, in, your, in your dimensions then. Because in that moment you are all there is. That feeling and that effort is called idolatry. That's a consciousness of self as divorced from and separate from and all that there is. These souls were created. Their first sensation was the sensation of I'm everything that there is. I'm an essential part of I'm not an emanation of anything else. I am necessary. I'm complete unto myself and I'm necessary. All the great 
Nimrod, for example. Nimrod, the original king of the world. When all humanity was united in one language and one culture. Nimrod means the one who rebelled. He taught that he was the creator of the world. Imagine a human being. And all the greats of, of the black side, the dark side, did that. Pharaoh, for example. Paroi. The Nile River is mine and I created me. There's one version that says, I created it. And the second that says, I created me, myself. How can a human being in his right mind get up and foist a belief on his people that he created himself? Do you know what it means to say you created yourself? That you are the beginning and the end of your own essence. You are self-contained and per- perfect and shalom and, and, and complete unto yourself. Esau, Esau said the same thing. They claim divine status. What does divine status mean? Complete unto myself, not needing any cause or prior. And if you think it's ludicrous, that's exactly what you and I subservient? You mean dissolve my ego? You mean annul myself and do what somebody else wants? I don't mind doing that occasionally when it suits me. Maybe. That's the problem. The beginning and the end yeah, of spiritual growth is the power of self-annulment. That means that... And the problem with the quality of this week right, is that strict din, strict justice, right, that is the, the problem with it. The positive side, obviously, is the sense of due limitation. Where correct discipline and correct boundaries are set... All Musa, that means all Jewish character building, all personality development, one way or another is self-control. Sense of limitation. In one way or another. In fact, on the contrary, our sources indicate that every mitzvah in the Torah is an effort of control. Positive mitzvahs are injunctions to do something when you wouldn't normally feel like doing it. And negative mitzvahs are to stop you doing something that you would be urged naturally to do. The Torah only speaks against your natural, lower, childish, animalistic desires. Or vested interests in one way or another. And the impure side of this sense of limitation is the sense of seeing things as they have to be, which means it couldn't be without me. On the contrary, the full version of it is that I'm everything. Not just that I'm an essential piece of the structure. And that's how a child is born. A child's sense of his own self is that he's the whole world. And most people, unfortunately, many people never outgrow that at all. Their world is there just to serve my needs, right? Even in the most intimate and deepest of relationships, the undeveloped mind sees them as feeding the essential essence, the essential being of what I am. And therefore, that is what's being discussed here. The river of fire, and it's time to go into everything. The river of fire that the piece begins with is really talking about you know, the Nardi Nur, the river of fire, means really, you must have noticed while we've been talking together, that the word Dinur, the river of fire, the word Dinur, if you rearrange the letters, it spells Yardain, the Jordan River. Right, which is the river that bounds the holiness from the, that which is external, the land of Israel, from the outside lands. At the Jordan. This is not a political talk this evening. <laughs> but uh, that's what it is. It's the Jordan River. And the word Yardain yeah, is comprised of two components, one of which is done, which means din. It's the river of... Fire is always the quality... (coughs) Fire is always the quality of din. To be dissolved in that river, that means to be burned in that river. Yeah, that means the... Yeah, that's the... (coughs) You know, the Marami Pana says a beautiful, very, very strikingly amazing and beautiful thing. 
What does it mean that the river is comprised of the sweat of the Chayas? What does it mean? This river is comprised of sweat of these particular angels. The sweat, the sweat, the sweat of these angels, of the Chayas, that forms this river and pours onto the heads of those who are immersed in this river, those who sit in that dimension of pain because their the actions have generated negativity. What does that mean? Just let's give one interpretation that's very beautiful. We said that the whole world is based on midah connected midah, measure for measure. Those who sit in that dimension of pain are there only because they generated it. How do you see that in this statement? You know who these angels are, the Chayes? Do you know who they are? They are the angels who hold up the Kisei. Their job, the job of these angels, they are those who hold up the throne, the divine throne, the Kisei. Yeah? They, they, they hold Hashem as it were, aloft. He sits on the throne. That is not a job that takes any work. Because all spiritual things that need to be carried, on the contrary, they carry the, th- the ones who carry them. What makes the throne heavy is the evil of people who live in negative... That means the, the wicked, evil people on earth. What do they do? They bring down Hashem's throne. They make it heavy to be carried. The angels need to understand what's going on here. These malachim need to work. The chayas need to work to keep the, the glory, to keep Hashem's presence, to keep that which is pure and good and spiritual and, and wonderful in the world. To keep it aloft. People should see that. But people who perpetrate evil, and without getting any more specific than necessary, people who perpetrate mayhem and chaos and murder and bloodshed, especially in the name of immorality, or any evil in the world, so they, the direct attack is on the spiritual source. That's where the direct attack is. The world no longer is a reflection of those values. On the contrary, so the highest this spiritual work that needs to be done to uphold, to uphold that, and that sweat, as it were, is exactly in proportion to the chilul Hashem. That work is exactly, obviously, in proportion. It's now the effort that must be put in to keep the world reflecting what it should, and therefore it pours down exactly on the heads of the ones who caused that work to be done in the first place, which is. It's a particularly beautiful insight. It comes from one of the great Kabbalistic masters of the last couple of centuries. That's the, the way the sages coined, the, the way they, they phrased their, their statements in these mysterious and often difficult to understand statements. But that's what it is. And therefore, let's sum up for this evening. We said that this week, this night, brings to a close the week of the quality of din. The quality is that of absolute, complete limitation where there's no admixture of any release or extension or, or credit or mercy, let's say. The ultimate level of human existence is in fact to live at that level like Rabbi Akiva, where you can take full responsibility, where you can live in such a world. You don't need extensions, you don't need credit, you don't need handouts. That was the ultimate aim and that is how the world will be. Underlying our perceptions, it is like that. Those beings were created, they died instantly. As they grasped themselves as independent, so they became independent. Independent means detached from the source. Detached from the source means non-existent. What became of them was exactly what they... Who is their counterpart in the world of the nations? Amalek. Amalek is that nation that lives to destroy Jews, even suicidally. (coughs) What's the punishment of Amalek in the end of days? Unlike all other nations, disappear entirely. They will disappear entirely. If Tzadok is quite clear, there's no redeeming feature, no, no sanctity to be drawn out of them, not even a spark. Disappear entirely. <laughs> what is the 
What is the reason? What's the midah connected midah? Why did this be entirely? Because their total reason for existence is destroying the Jewish people. Huh? Say some of our sources. What would in fact be the result of destroying the Jewish people entirely? The world would end. Because the world is here for us to bring Torah into it. So what they get at the end of history is exactly what they would have got had they done what they tried to do. Disappear entirely. Bring the world into total non-existence. So that is exactly what happens to them. Again, the same, the same idea. So, that is the, that's the beginning of an insight into this pe- little piece of, short piece of Gemara with the angels who are created every day and sink into that river of fire every night until the parts that, that haven't been expressed are brought out the next day and so the cycle goes on. That river that separates the land of Kedusha from the land outside. And that is the introduction to the, the parallel concept of the 974 generations of Neshamas that were created. We have sources that indicate that when Adam came on the scene as the 975th generation, the reason that he did what he did and, and, and asserted himself where he shouldn't have, because that's what he did. But he did what he wasn't supposed to do in an assertion of self. His command was to do nothing. Can you see how he was a continuation of the previous generations? His commandment was not to do a mitzvah. His commandment was to do nothing. Don't touch, don't eat, rather. Don't eat the fruit of the tree. He wasn't asked to do and to support the world and build it. He was asked not to break it. Don't assert yourself. Sit passive and admit that I, said Hashem, am everything. But he couldn't do that. He had to bring himself into assertion. And some of our sources say he was trying to save the 974 generations, lift them on his shoulders. Which ultimately will, of course, happen. And the message, of course, if you need to take home a message beyond the Torah of the issue, is that the, the work in the soul that has to be done here and comes to its completion on this particular day is the very difficult, ultimately difficult work of complete self-negation, or rather the discovery of self in the destruction of vested interests. It's not, we, 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 don't, we don't hold our, pro, our process, our, our Jewish concept of self-development is not to disappear as an entity. We are trying not to kill our, our personalities and our talents and our abilities. On the contrary, those have to be brought to flaming fruition and fulfillment. You're given a personality and unique tools and talents to use, not to destroy. You have to use those. But what has to be destroyed is the vested interest. What we call the farzikh, that means the for me that's in it. Not the childish vested interest that I'm doing it as an expression of me. Because the paradox is when you come to express you, that's in fact all you manage to express, which is your nothingness, your littleness, your smallness. The correct motivation is to destroy those vested interests so what you in fact end up expressing is that which is cosmically great.